Chapters eight to nine of Book Five of Toilers of the Sea, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams, Toilers of the Sea, Part One, Sieur Clubin by Victor Hugo, translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book Five, The Revolver. Chapter eight, A Cannon Off the Red Ball and the Black. On the morrow, which was a Thursday, a tragic circumstance occurred at a short distance from San Malo, near the peak of the Décolle, a spot where the cliff is high and the sea deep. A line of rocks in the form of the top of a lance, and connecting themselves with the land by a narrow isthmus, stretch out there into the water, ending abruptly with a large peak-shaped breaker nothing is commoner in the architecture of the sea in attempting to reach the plateau of the peaked rock from the shore it was necessary to follow an inclined plane the ascent of which was here and there somewhat steep it was upon a plateau of this kind towards four o'clock in the afternoon that a man was standing enveloped in a large military cape and armed a fact easy to be perceived from certain straight and angular folds in his mantle. The summit on which this man was resting was a rather extensive platform, dotted with large masses of rock, like enormous paving stones, leaving between them narrow passages. This platform, on which a kind of thick, short grass grew here and there, came to an end on the seaside in an open space, leading to a perpendicular escarpment the escarpment rising about sixty feet above the level of the sea seemed cut down by the aid of a plumb-line its left angle however was broken away and formed one of those natural staircases common to granite cliffs worn by the sea the steps of which are somewhat inconvenient requiring sometimes the strides of a giant or the leaps of an acrobat these stages of rock descended perpendicularly to the sea where they were lost it was a break-neck place however in case of absolute necessity a man might succeed in embarking there under the very wall of the cliff a breeze was sweeping the sea the man wrapped in his cape and standing firm with his left hand grasping his right shoulder closed one eye and applied the other to a telescope he seemed absorbed in anxious scrutiny he had approached the edge of the escarpment and stood there motionless his gaze immovably fixed on the horizon the tide was high the waves were beating below against the foot of the cliffs the object which the stranger was observing was a vessel in the offing and which was manoeuvring in a strange manner the vessel which had hardly left the port of san malo an hour had stopped behind the bonquetier it had not cast anchor, perhaps because the bottom would only have permitted it to bear to leeward on the edge of the cable, and because the ship would have strained on her anchor under the cutwater. Her captain had contented himself with lying too. The stranger, who was a coast guardsman, as was apparent from his uniform cape, watched all the movements of the three master, and seemed to note them mentally. The vessel was lying too, a little off the wind, which was indicated by the backing of the small topsail and the bellying of the main topsail. She had squared the mizzen and set the topmast as close as possible, and in such a manner as to work the sails against each other, and to make little way either on or off shore. 
her captain evidently did not care to expose his vessel much to the wind for he had only braced up the small mizzen topsail in this way coming crossway on he did not drift at the utmost more than half a league an hour it was still broad daylight particularly on the open sea and on the heights of the cliff the shores below were becoming dark the coast guardsman still engaged in his duty and carefully scanning the offing had not thought of observing the rocks at his side and at his feet he turned his back towards the difficult sort of causeway which formed the communication between his resting-place and the shore he did not therefore remark that something was moving in that direction behind a fragment of rock among the steps of that causeway something like the figure of a man had been concealed according to all appearances since the arrival of the coast guardman from time to time a head issued from the shadow behind the rock looked up and watched the watcher the head surmounted by a wide-brimmed american hat was that of the quaker-looking man who ten days before was talking among the stones of the petit bay to captain zuela suddenly the curiosity of the coast guardman seemed to be still more strongly awakened he polished the glass of his telescope quickly with his sleeve and brought it to bear closely upon the three master a little black spot seemed to detach itself from her side the black spot looking like a small insect upon the water was a boat the boat seemed to be making for the shore it was manned by several sailors who were pulling vigorously she pulled crosswise by little and little and appeared to be approaching the pointe du décollé the gaze of the coast guardman seemed to have reached its most intense point no movement of the boat escaped it he had approached nearer still to the verge of the rock at that instant a man of large stature appeared on one of the rocks behind him it was the quaker the officer did not see him the man paused an instant his arms at his sides but with his fists doubled and with the eye of a hunter watching for his prey he observed the back of the officer four steps only separated them he put one foot forward then stopped took a second step and stopped again he made no movement except the act of walking all the rest of his body was motionless as a statue his foot fell upon the tufts of grass without noise he made a third step and paused again he was almost within reach of the coast guard who stood there still motionless with his telescope the man brought his two closed fists to a level with his collar-bone then struck out his arm sharply and his two fists as if thrown from a sling struck the coast guardman on the two shoulders the shock was decisive the coast guardman had not the time to utter a cry he fell head first from the height of the rock into the sea his boots appeared in the air about the time occupied by a flash of lightning it was like the fall of a stone in the sea which instantly closed over him two or three circles widened out upon the dark water nothing remained but the telescope which had dropped from the hands of the man and lay upon the turf the quaker leaned over the edge of the escarpment a moment watched the circles vanishing on the water waited a few minutes and then rose again singing in a low voice the captain of police is dead through having lost his life
He knelt down a second time. Nothing reappeared. Only at the spot where the officer had been engulfed, he observed on the surface of the water a sort of dark spot, which became diffused with the gentle lapping of the waves. It seemed probable that the coast guardman had fractured his skull against some rock under water, and that his blood caused the spot in the foam. The Quaker, while considering the meaning of this spot, began to sing again. Not very long before he died, the luckless man was still alive. He did not finish his song. He heard an extremely soft voice behind him, which said, "'Is that you, Rontaine? Good day. You have just killed a man.' He turned. About fifteen paces behind him, in one of the passages between the rocks, stood a little man, holding a revolver in his hand. The Quaker answered, "'As you see. Good day, Sieur Clubin.' The little man started. "'You know me?' "'You knew me very well,' replied Rontaine. Meanwhile they could hear a sound of oars on the sea. It was the approach of the boat which the officer had observed. Sieur Clubin said in a low tone, as if speaking to himself, "'It was done quickly.' "'What can I do to oblige you?' asked Rontaine. "'Oh, a trifling matter. It is very nearly ten years since I saw you. You must have been doing well. How are you?' "'Well enough,' answered Rontaine. "'How are you?' "'Very well,' replied Clubin. Rontaine advanced a step towards Clubin. A little sharp click caught his ear. It was Sieur Clubin who was cocking his revolver. "'Rontaine, there are about fifteen paces between us. It is a nice distance. Remain where you are.' "'Very well,' said Rontaine. "'What do you want with me?' "'I? Oh, I have come to have a chat with you.' Rontaine did not offer to move again. Sieur Clubin continued, "'You assassinated a coast guardman just now.' Rontaine lifted the flap of his hat and replied, "'You have already done me the honour to mention it.' "'Exactly. But in terms less precise, I said a man, I say now, a coast guardman. The man wore the number 619. He was the father of a family, leaves a wife and five children.' "'That is no doubt correct,' said Rontaine. There was a momentary pause. They are picked men, those Coast Guard people, continued Clubin, almost all old sailors. I have remarked, said Rontaine, that people generally do leave a wife and five children. Sieur Clubin continued, Guess how much this revolver cost me. It is a pretty tool, said Rontaine. What do you guess it at? I should guess it at a good deal. It cost me one hundred and forty-four francs. "'You must have bought that,' said Rontaine, at the shop in the Ruelle Coutanchet. Clubin continued. "'He did not cry out. The fall stopped his voice, no doubt.' "'Sieur Clubin, there will be a breeze to-night. I am the only one in the secret. Do you still stay at the Jean Auberge? Yes, you are not badly served there. I remember getting some excellent sauerkraut there. "'You must be exceedingly strong, Rontaine. What shoulders you have! I should be sorry to get a tap from you. I, on the other hand, when I came into the world, looked so spare and sickly that they despaired of rearing me. They succeeded, though, which was lucky. Yes, I still stay at the Jean Auberge.' "'Do you know, Sieur Clubin, how I recognized you? 
it was from your having recognized me. I said to myself, there is nobody like Sieur Clubin for that. And he advanced a step. Stand back where you were, Rontaine. Rontaine fell back and said to himself, a fellow becomes like a child before one of those weapons. Sieur Clubin continued, the position of affairs is this. We have on our right, in the direction of Saint-Inogar, at about three hundred paces from here, another coast guardman. His number is 618, who is still alive. And on our left, in the direction of Saint-Lunaire, a customs station. That makes seven armed men, who could be here, if necessary, in five minutes. The rock would be surrounded, the way hither guarded, impossible to elude them. There is a corpse at the foot of this rock. Rontaine took a sideway glance at the revolver. "'As you say, Rontaine, it is a pretty tool. Perhaps it is only loaded with powder. But what does that matter? A report would be enough to bring an armed force, and I have six barrels here.' The measured sound of the oars became very distinct. The boat was not far off. The tall man regarded the little man curiously. Sieur Clubin spoke in a voice more and more soft and subdued. Rontaine, the men in the boat which is coming, knowing what you did here just now, would lend a hand and help to arrest you. You are to pay Captain Zuela ten thousand francs for your passage. You would have made a better bargain, by the way, with the smugglers of Plainmont, but they would only have taken you to England, and besides you cannot risk going to Guernsey, where they have the pleasure of knowing you. To return, then, to the position of affairs, if I fire, you are arrested. You are to pay Zuella for your passage ten thousand francs. You have already paid him five thousand in advance. Zuella would keep the five thousand and be gone. These are the facts. Rontaine, you have managed your masquerading very well. That hat, that queer coat, and those gaiters make a wonderful change. You forgot the spectacles, but did right to let your whiskers grow. Rontaine smiled spasmodically. Clubin continued, Rontaine, you have on a pair of American breeches with a double fob. In one side you keep your watch. Take care of it. Thank you, Sieur Clubin. In the other is a little box made of wrought iron which opens and shuts with a spring. It is an old sailor's tobacco box. Take it out of your pocket and throw it over to me. Why, this is robbery! You're at liberty to call the coast guardman. And Clubin fixed his eye on Rontaine. Stay, Mess Clubin, said Rontaine, making a slight forward movement and holding out his open hand. The title Mess was a delicate flattery. Stay where you are, Rontaine. Mess Clubin, let us come to terms. I offer you half. Clubin crossed his arms, still showing the barrels of his revolver. Rontaine, what do you take me for? I am an honest man. And he added after a pause, I must have the whole. Rontaine muttered between his teeth, This fellow's of a stern sort. The eyes of Clubin lighted up, his voice became clear and sharp as steel. He cried, 
I see that you are laboring under a mistake. Robbery is your name, not mine. My name is Restitution. Hark you, Rontaine. Ten years ago you left Guernsey one night, taking with you the cash box of a certain partnership concern, containing fifty thousand francs which belonged to you, but forgetting to leave behind you fifty thousand francs which were the property of another. Those fifty thousand francs, the money of your partner, the excellent and worthy Mess Lethierry, make at present a compound interest calculated for ten years, eighty thousand six hundred and sixty-six francs. You went into a money changer's yesterday. I'll give you his name, Rebouchet, in Saint-Vincent Street. You counted out to him seventy-six thousand francs in French bank-notes, in exchange for which he gave you three notes of the Bank of England for one thousand pounds sterling each, plus the exchange. You put these bank-notes in the iron tobacco-box, and the iron tobacco-box into your double fob on the right side. On the part of Mess Lethierry, I shall be content with that. I start to-morrow for Guernsey, and intend to hand it to him. Rontaine, the three-master lying to out yonder, is the Tamaulipas. You have had your luggage put aboard there, with the other things belonging to the crew. You want to leave France. You have your reasons. You are going to Arequipa. The boat is coming to fetch you. You are awaiting it. It is at hand. You can hear it. It depends on me, whether you go or stay. No more words. Fling me the tobacco-box. Rontaine dipped his hand in the fob, drew out a little box, and threw it to Clubin. It was the iron tobacco-box. It fell and rolled at Clubin's feet. Clubin knelt without lowering his gaze, felt about for the box with his left hand, keeping all the while his eyes and the six barrels of the revolver fixed upon Rontaine. Then he cried, "'Turn your back, my friend!' Rontaine turned his back. Sieur Clubin put the revolver under one arm and touched the spring of the tobacco-box. The lid flew open. It contained four bank-notes, three of a thousand pounds and one of ten pounds. He folded up the three bank-notes of a thousand pounds each, replaced them in the iron tobacco-box, shut the lid again, and put it in his pocket. Then he picked up a stone, wrapped it in the ten-pound note, and said, "'You may turn round again.' Rontaine turned. Sieur Clubin continued, "'I told you I would be contented with three thousand pounds. Here, I return you ten pounds.' And he threw to Rontaine the note enfolding the stone. Rontaine, with a movement of his foot, sent the bank-note and the stone into the sea. "'As you please,' said Clubin, "'you must be rich. I am satisfied.' The noise of oars, which had been continually drawing nearer during the dialogue, ceased. They knew by this that the boat had arrived at the base of the cliff. "'Your vehicle waits below. You can go, Rontaine.' Rontaine advanced towards the steps of stones and rapidly disappeared. Clubin moved cautiously towards the edge of the escarpment and watched him descending. The boat had stopped near the last stage of the rocks, at the very spot where the coast guardman had fallen. Still observing Rontaine stepping from stone to stone, Clubin muttered, A good number, 619. He thought himself alone. Rontaine thought there were only two there. I alone knew that there were three. He perceived at his feet the telescope which had dropped from the hand of the coast guardman. 
The sound of oars was heard again. Rontaine had stepped into the boat, and the rowers had pushed out to sea. When Rontaine was safely in the boat, and the cliff was beginning to recede from his eyes, he arose again abruptly. His features were convulsed with rage. He clenched his fist and cried, Ha! He is the devil himself, a villain! A few seconds later, Clubin, from the top of the rock, while bringing his telescope to bear upon the boat, heard distinctly the following words articulated by a loud voice, and mingling with the noise of the sea. Sieur Clubin, you are an honest man, but you will not be offended if I write to Lethierry to acquaint him with this matter, and we have here in the boat a sailor from Guernsey, who is one of the crew of the Tamaulipa. His name is Achier Tostevin, and he will return to San Malo on Zuela's next voyage, to bear testimony to the fact of my having returned to you, on Mess Lethierry's account, the sum of three thousand pounds sterling. It was Rontaine's voice. Clubin rarely did things by halves. Motionless as the coast guardman had been, and in the exact same place, his eye still at the telescope, he did not lose sight of the boat for one moment. He saw it growing less amidst the waves, watched it disappear and reappear, and approached the vessel, which was lying too. Finally he recognized the tall figure of Rontaine on the deck of the Tamaulipas. When the boat was raised and slung again to the davits, the Tamaulipas was in motion once more. The land breeze was fresh, and she spread all her sails. Clubin's glass continued, fixed upon her outline growing more and more indistinct, until half an hour later, when the Tamaulipas had become only a dark shape upon the horizon, growing smaller and smaller against the pale twilight in the sky. Chapter 9. Useful information for persons who expect or fear the arrival of letters from beyond sea. On that evening, Sieur Clubin returned late. One of the causes of his delay was that before going to his inn, he had paid a visit to the Dinan gate of the town, a place where there were several wine-shops. In one of these wine-shops, where he was not known, he had bought a bottle of brandy, which he placed in the pocket of his overcoat as if he desired to conceal it. Then, as the Durand was to start on the following morning, he had taken a turn aboard to satisfy himself that everything was in order. When Sieur Clubin returned to the Jean Auberge, there was no one left in the lower room except the old sea-captain, Monsieur Gertrais Gaborol who was drinking a jug of ale and smoking his pipe. M. Gertrais Gaborol saluted Sieur Clubin between a whiff and a draught of ale. "'How do you do, Captain Clubin?' "'Good evening, Captain Gertrais.' "'Well, the Somali part is gone.' "'Ah,' said Clubin, "'I did not observe.' Captain Gertrais Gaborol expectorated, and said, "'Zuela has decamped.' "'When was that?' "'This evening.' Where is he gone? To the devil, no doubt. But where is that? To Arequipa. I knew nothing of it, said Clubin. He added, I am going to bed. He lighted his candle, walked towards the door, and returned. Have you ever been at Arequipa, Captain? Yes, some years ago. Where do they touch on that voyage? A little everywhere, but the Tamaulipas will touch nowhere. 
M. Gertrude Gaboreau emptied his pipe upon the corner of a plate and continued, "'You know the lugger called the Trojan Horse, and that fine three-master, the Trente Mousin, which had gone to Cardiff?' I was against their sailing on account of the weather. They have returned in a fine state. The lugger was laden with turpentine. She sprang a leak, and in working the pumps, they pumped up with the water all her cargo. As to the three-master, she has suffered most above water. Her cut-water, her head-rail, the stock of her larboard anchor are broken. Her standing jib-boom is gone, clean by the cap. As for the jib-shrouds and bob-stays, go and see what they look like. The mizzen-mast is not injured, but has had a severe shock. All the iron of the bowsprit has given way, and it is an extraordinary fact that, though the bowsprit itself is not scratched, it is completely stripped. The larboard bow of the vessel is stove in a good three feet square. This is what comes of not taking advice." Clubin had placed the candle on the table, and had begun to readjust a row of pins, which he kept in the collar of his overcoat. He continued, "'Didn't you say, Captain, that the Tamaulipa would not touch anywhere?' "'Yes, she goes direct to Chile. In that case she can send no news of herself on the voyage.' "'I beg your pardon, Captain Clubin. In the first place she can send any letters by vessels she may meet sailing for Europe.' "'That is true.' then there is the ocean letter-box what do you mean by the ocean letter-box don't you know what that is captain clubin no when you pass the straits of magellan well snow all around you always bad weather ugly down-easters and bad seas well when you have doubled cape monmouth well what next then you double cape valentine and then why then you double cape isadora and afterwards you double point anne good but what is it you call the ocean letter-box we're coming to that mountains on the right mountains on the left penguins and stormy petrels all about a terrible place ah by jove what a howling and what cracks you get there the hurricane wants no help that's the place for holding on to the sheer rails for reefing topsails that's where you take in the mainsail and fly the jibsail or take in the jibsail and try the storm jib gusts upon gusts and then sometimes four five or six days of scudding under bare poles often only a rag of canvas left what a dance squalls enough to make a three-master skip like a flea i saw once a cabin boy hanging on to the jib boom of an english brig the true blue knocked jib broom and all to ten thousand nothings fellows are swept into the sea there like butterflies i saw the second mate of the revenue a pretty schooner knocked from under the forecross tree and killed dead i have had my sheer rails smashed and come out with all my sails in ribbons frigates of fifty guns make water like wicker baskets and the damnable coast nothing can be imagined more dangerous rocks all jagged edged you come by and by to port famine there it's worse and worse the worst seas i ever saw in my life the devil's own latitudes all of a sudden you spy the words painted in red post office what do you mean captain gertray 
I mean, Captain Clubin, that immediately after doubling Point Anne, you see, on a rock, a hundred feet high, a great post with a barrel suspended to the top. This barrel is the letter-box. The English sailors must needs go and write up their post-office. What had they to do with it? It is the ocean post-office. It isn't the property of that worthy gentleman, the King of England. The box is common to all. It belongs to every flag. Post-office! There's a crack-jaw word for you. It produces an effect on me, as if the devil had suddenly offered me a cup of tea. I will tell you now how the postal arrangements are carried out. Every vessel which passes sends to the post a boat with dispatches. A vessel coming from the Atlantic, for instance, sends there its letters for Europe, and a ship coming from the Pacific its letters for New Zealand or California. The officer in command of the boat puts his packet into the barrel and takes away any packet he finds there. You take charge of these letters, and the ship which comes after you takes charge of yours. As ships are always going to and fro, the continent whence you come is that to which I am going. I carry your letters, you carry mine. The barrel is made fast to the post with a chain, and it rains, snows, and hails. A pretty sea. The imps of Satan fly about on every side. The Tamaulipa will pass there. The barrel has a good lid with a hinge, but no padlock. You see, a fellow can write to his friends this way. The letters come safely. It is very curious, muttered Clubin thoughtfully. Captain Gertrude Gaborol returned to his bottle of ale. If that vagabond Zuella should write, continued Clubin aside, the scoundrel puts his scrawl into the barrel at Magellan, and in four months I have his letter. Well, Captain Clubin, do you start to-morrow? Clubin, absorbed in a sort of somnambulism, did not notice the question, and Captain Gertrais repeated it. Clubin woke up. Of course, Captain Gertrais, it is my day. I must start to-morrow morning. If it was my case, I shouldn't, Captain Clubin. The hair of the dog's coat feels damp. For two nights past, the seabirds have been flying wildly round the lanthorn of the lighthouse. A bad sign. I have a storm-glass, too, which gives me a warning. The moon is at her second quarter. It is the maximum of humidity. I noticed to-day some pimpernels with their leaves shut, and a field of clover with its stalks all stiff. The worms come out of the ground to-day. The flies sting. The bees keep close to their hives. The sparrows chatter together. You can hear the sound of bells from far off. I heard to-night the Angelus at Saint-Lunaire, and then the sun set angry. There will be a good fog to-morrow. Mark my words. I don't advise you to put to sea. I dread the fog a good deal more than a hurricane. It's a nasty neighbour, that. End of chapter 9 of Book 5 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com